0: Hello and welcome to the September 2011 podcast of the IFRS Interpretations Committee. My name is Michael Stewart and I'm the Director of Implementation Activities at the IASB and I'm joined with Wayne Upton, Director of International Activities and Chairman of the IFRS Interpretations Committee. We've just completed the uh, September meeting of the committee and this update will provide you with a brief overview of some of the issues that the committee discussed during its two-day meeting. This is a podcast of the staff of the IASB and so does not represent official views or interpretations of the committee or the IASB. All official decisions of the IASB and the Interpretations Committee are uh, final after full due process, and the official record of the Interpretations Committee meeting is published in IFRIC Update, available on the ISB website. First issue that we wanted to talk about this afternoon was regarding um, levies and accounting for levies. Now, this is an issue uh, that the committee has uh, considered uh, on a couple of occasions now and uh, came to us as a question about whether IFRIC 6 relating to uh, waste electrical electronic equipment interpretation could be applied to other government-imposed levies. Now, the committee has... uh, been looking at this from the context of um, a number of different levies, particularly where uh, the um, activity that gives rise to an obligation um, occurs in a period that is different from the period in which the measurement of the uh, levy is determined. And the question that the committee has been considering is when does the obligation arise? When should an entity record a liability? Well, the committee continued its discussions at this meeting and has um, decided that it will continue to to work with this issue, uh, but has directed the staff to look in more detail at um, some of the, the, the basis of the recognition of a liability and to bring back the issue to a future meeting um, with further analysis of the requirements in IS 37 about when to uh, record that obligation.
1: Michael, I think one of the things that distinguished this issue in my mind, uh, it is a classic question of what the obligating event is, and in particular are there one or two events that have to occur before the obligation attaches. I do think one of the insights that the committee provided is that there is in the minds of some committee members a fundamental difference between a license fee or a toll in which there is an exchange for some kind of right or service and many of these levies which are more in the line of being a pure tax, whether they're an excise tax or some other form, and I think the committee did want us to distinguish those, and the license fees are perhaps the easier question to answer, and they wanted us, I think, to concentrate on the more difficult question, which is these that not involve an exchange for some right or something like that that we would normally see in a license situation.
0: Yes, indeed. And so there isn't an obvious asset that necessarily comes along with these. And so one of the questions that will then follow on after the identification of when to recognize the liability is what do we do with the debit? Okay. And, and
1: certainly one of the concerns is that It appears that in some of these, the entire liability attaches on a single day, frequently January the 1st. And the obvious concern is that that is the tax for a year. And so is there some basis to recognize that expense over the year, rather than to say, no, you have to recognize the entire amount on January 1st. Which seems a, a troublesome kind of a result, but we need to think about what the justification of an alternative would be.
0: Okay. The next item to mention is one relating to IS twelve on income taxes, and this question uh, came to the committee and was discussed by them for the first time at, at this meeting. It relates to an amendment that was made to IS-12 in December of last year and uh, concerns when an investment property is um, uh, carried at at fair value, and when or in what circumstances the presumption that is described in IS 12 for the basis on which to record the deferred tax, when that can be rebutted. Now the standard has um, an example of uh, a circumstance or identifies a particular circumstance when that presumption can be rebutted, the question was, is that just an example or um, is that uh, the only circumstance in which the uh, presumption can be rebutted? Now, the committee's view, I think, on this was... Uh, it, the, that the Board has not ruled out the possibility of other circumstances where a presumption could be rebutted, but that uh, perhaps that was the only example that they could contemplate or they did contemplate at the time of, of making that amendment. However, the other observation that I think the committee made was that even when you make the, 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 the you are able to rebut the presumption um, it 's a question of um, you either account for the deferred tax as if the entire carrying amount is to be recovered through sale or that it's to be recovered through use and that the dual purpose um, basis of a sort of a blended approach isn't appropriate uh, for this kind of uh, investment property.
1: And I think that view was supported, Michael, by the comments that we received from the board members who regularly participate. Now they are expressing their individual views, but this in their minds, and, and I, my recollection would be consistent with that, is a pragmatic expedient. Uh, unfortunately, currency units don't come with labels attached saying this one belongs to use and this one belongs to sale. And so it's a little bit hard to have a non-arbitrary split. And so I think the board members wanted to provide a pragmatic approach rather than imposing the burden on people of having to make some frequently fairly arbitrary discussions.
0: And that is uh, one of the tentative agenda decisions that the committee reached during its uh, discussions at this meeting and as with all tentative agenda decisions that the committee reaches is open for public comment and the uh, committee will accept uh, comments on that tentative agenda decision until the 17th of October so if anyone um, has alternative views from those reached by the committee then they should write to the committee explaining those views so that it can reconsider that Issue at the November committee meeting. The next item to mention is an item that, or a question that we received relating to IFRS 10 on consolidation. And this is um, a new standard that becomes effective from 2013. And the question related to the implementation of the standard, it was concerning the date of initial application. And in particular, uh, how the comparative period should be uh, treated. Uh, the question was um, Is there full retrospective application of that standard such that the comparative period would reflect the um, revised approach to consolidation that IFRS 10 introduces compared with the old IS 27? Or is there some limitation to that uh, retrospective application? And in particular, if there is, for example, um, an entity that a company had um, uh, controlled as defined by the the new standard up until uh, the uh, beginning of the current period, so January 2013, but sometime during 2012 had uh, disposed of that, whether it needed to go back and consolidate that entity during its comparative period or not and I think it was clear from the discussions that there were different views as to how that uh, guidance might be read and so the the committee uh, has proposed that the the board should clarify uh, the implementation of that particular standard. The Next item to mention uh, is relating to IFRS 3 on business combinations, and this is a continuation of a discussion that the committee had um, uh, started at their last meeting in July, and the interaction with IS 40 on investment properties. Now, the question uh, concerns uh, circumstances when an entity acquires another entity that contains an investment property and where that investment property includes, for example, number of tenants and the provision of ser- some services to those tenants. And does that represent a business combination or does it simply reflect the purchase of an investment property? Um, now, a, an important consequence of this is whether the business combination's accounting guidance should be applied, uh, which would have consequences for things like Recording of deferred tax and the accounting for transaction costs associated with the acquisition. Uh, now, the committee looked at uh, the the interrelationship there, and uh, were of the view or observed that uh, the two standards IFRS three and IFRS forty are not mutually exclusive, um, but decided that uh, that the staff should consider whether clarification should be added um, to IS 40 through the annual improvements process to to try and give um, greater segregation between when um, such a a, a transaction is a business combination and when it's simply an asset purchase.
1: And this is a perennial problem. This is this is not a new issue although certainly it takes on a special focus as a consequence of IAS 40. Uh, one small expansion I think we need to make, Michael, is that these need not be the acquisition of an entity. Uh, sometimes they are. Sometimes you buy an entity with a, whose assets are wholly composed of investment property or properties, but you can also acquire just the property with an existing tenant base and one of the the key issue really that we were trying to grapple with is in what circumstances does that transaction constitute the acquisition of a business in which case it is a business combination uh, given the choice between always and never i think it's fair to say that the committee tended toward sometimes And one of the things that we'll be looking at is the degree to which we can suggest things to the board that might help people to identify the situations in which it would appear that a business combination has taken place. But the clear point, I think, to take away from this is that the fact that one acquires something that falls within the ambit of IAS 40 does not mean that you can ignore IFRS 3 on business combinations. You have to think about the implications for both standards.
0: Yes. Yeah. No, that was certainly a clear message from the committee members, yes. And the last uh, topic to just touch on uh, was one relating to IFRS 11 on joint arrangements. And again, this was another issue that had been discussed at the previous meeting and was uh, had further discussion this time. And the question relates to uh, circumstances in which an entity uh, purchases an interest in um, a joint operation, so a particular type of, of joint arrangement, um, and where that uh, joint operation itself represents a business, and whether or not uh, business combinations accounting should be applied in those circumstances to account for um, uh, goodwill. Indeed, is there goodwill there uh, that should be recognised? And uh, th- on this one, the the, the committee um, felt that uh, th- there was there's more more analysis uh, considered. Although I think the majority of the committee, to be fair to say, were of the view that. Uh, Uh, because it is not a business combination that IFRS 3 accounting shouldn't automatically apply, um, given that there are diverse views in practice, um, the the committee has uh, asked for some further consideration to be given as to um, how we might take this forward if we were to clarify that uh, uh, it should be accounted for as uh, an asset-type acquisition rather than a business combination-type accounting.
1: I think Michael's right. This is fairly typical of both committee meetings and and meetings by the board that as the conversation goes along it ventures into territory that is fairly spontaneously being developed and I think the committee showed a lot of responsibility in saying we need to think about this more and not reach a decision today without seeing the analysis of what some of the implications would be. And so their decision was, we we think we've got a direction to pursue. The, the key issue, as Michael says, is number one, key issues, excuse me, are number one, can you analogize to IFRS 3? And number two, can you do so selectively? or do you have to embrace the standard as a whole? And I do think views on that point were were divided, but also that we didn't have full analysis of those. So we need to bring this one back.
0: Yeah. Well, that is a brief summary of some of the issues that were discussed at the September 2011 IFRS Interpretations Committee. Uh, What you've heard has been personal views from staff members of the ISB and so does not represent official authoritative uh, views or guidance from the ISB or the IFRS Interpretations Committee. The full and official record of the proceedings of the IFRS Interpretations Committee uh, will be uh, published in IFRIC update on the ISB website um, in the next few days and uh, should be referred to for um, the official record. The next meeting of the Interpretations Committee will be on the 3rd and 4th of November and so for now thank you for listening. Thank you very much.